time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Christ. I'm here to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Teach you God's Word. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It's a full-time job nowadays. Lots of stuff out there. It's being called Christian. Our job is to ask the question, is it really biblical or is it really Christian? And the way we do that is by digging into God's Word and comparing what we hear to the Word of God. It's pretty simple. Now today is an interesting show because I actually am not in the studio. (laughs) I am on a quick business trip up north and uh, we'll be back tomorrow in the studio live So uh, you get to hear a Sunday school lesson. In fact, this is the Sunday school lesson that I taught this past Sunday at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. I teach the adult Sunday school class there. And uh, in fact, if you would like to uh, visit and attend my Sunday school class, Sunday school class begins at about 1045 in the morning. And uh, if you need information on the church, you can visit the church's website at faith-lcms.org. So uh, today's topic actually is the beginning of a, of a multi-part lesson that I'm teaching regarding Abraham. I've been working through a series that I've been doing on finding Christ. Where is Christ in the Old Testament? Jesus Christ himself told the Pharisees that uh, they diligently search the scriptures because they think that in them they have life, yet they are the very te- uh, scriptures that testify about him, and they refuse to come to him to have life. And then on the road to Emmaus, in uh, the last few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, describes, starting with Moses and the prophets, he tells the two disciples on the road to Emmaus all about the things that must happen to the Christ. Scripture is about, really, it's really about Jesus and what he's done. Our contribution to the story is our sin. The story of the Bible is really about Christ's rescue of humanity. And so uh, we're looking in this uh, Sunday School lesson at the story of Abraham, and uh, we're going to get to the the story of Melchizedek next time in my Sunday School lesson. So if I have the ability, I will post that and uh, make that part of the radio program here. But today we're doing a little bit of groundwork, doing some long gospel work in the New Testament and looking at how Paul uses Abraham and the story of Abraham and shows us where the gospel is in that story. So without any further ado, today's uh, Fighting for the Faith program is this lecture on uh, Abraham and Jesus in the Old Testament. I hope you enjoy it. And if you would like to email me afterwards, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. All right, I just spent the last week in Chicago, and I was at uh, Willow Creek. And uh, that was uh, interesting. It was revealing. I was at the Reveal Conference. <laughs> I wrote that joke myself. <laughs> right, that's right. I've gone from delivering preset of jokes, you know, from Jungle Cruise Captain to actually writing my own material. So, <laughs> anyway, it, what's funny is, is that we'll actually talk a little bit about this as we uh, get into today's lesson. So, we'll, without any further ado, we'll get started. I always like to go through my presuppositions because everyone's got them, and, and it's important to do solo scriptura. Um, the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the supreme authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. We don't, um, 
I, one of the things I'm going to be doing, I have all the audio from the Reveal Conference, and one of the things that amazed me was how many different pastors that they had up on the stage who said things to this effect. God told me this. I felt in my heart that God said this. I felt that God was leading me to do this. God said, and I'm, think, I'm sitting there going, wow, we've got a whole group of pastors who are receiving direct revelation from God to support, supposedly support the things that they're doing in their ministry. And um, to which I say, um, the, we're all about sola scriptura. If, you're getting, if, if God is calling you up directly on the phone to tell you what to do and what to think and what to, whatever, I, my question would be, how do you know that's God? Okay, maybe you have low blood sugar, and if you have an orange, it'll go away. You, you just never know. You got to be real careful. So, in today's day and age, uh, especially since you know the charismatic influence has really permeated a lot of American evangelicalism, we got to come back to sola scriptura. And you know, and somebody who says God told me this, if their doctrine and their theology is off, it ain't God telling them that. It's either themselves or something demonic. And I know that's a hard line to take, but that's the, the, the line that we have to. Sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. Now, this is important because um, it is by grace that we are truly saved. Now, this is not enough. You know, even the Roman Catholics say that we're saved by grace. But we also add to that mix uh, through faith alone, uh, through Christ alone. Okay? Those last two ones really make the difference. Because even a Roman Catholic can say that we're saved by grace alone. But they won't say that we're saved by faith alone through Christ alone. That's the difference. Uh, interactive, the class, you can ask, stop and ask me questions anytime you like. And uh, we'll get into it. I always like to start with something fun, maddening wine. And this actually serves a purpose as we get into our uh, lesson today. Um, this is uh, from a church uh, in uh, Texas. The name of the church is Keystone. They sent out a big mailer. This person's holding up something they got in the mail. And they're doing an entire sermon series on the... Uh, on music from the Beatles. Music from the Beatles. Help. I need somebody help. And, uh, let me, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, <laughs> they had a sermon on control issues, worry, negativity, and insecurity. Does anyone notice anything about those particular sermon focuses? So they had one sermon on control issues, and that would be a good one for me. It's all psychological, right? It's all psychological. Worry, negativity, and insecurity. Now, this is important, especially as we looking, we're looking at Christ in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about Abraham and Melchizedek. Okay? One of the primary issues that, that's happening in American spirituality is this concept that when people come to, to church, they come to church with hurts and hang-ups and, and um, almost as if... Everyone who's coming to church is there because they have psychological problems or they've somehow been victimized and they need to overcome these things, okay? Um, the problem is, is that Christianity, biblical Christianity, teaches that we all come to church as sinners, okay? Um, so if I come to church saying, oh, I've been a victim of insecurity, or oh, I have control issues, but, you know, these are psychological things that are that just need to be tool, you know, retooled and re thunk. I'm not coming to church with the understanding that I am a sinner in need of a savior. Instead, I am just somebody who's been victimized or who has some 
some issues that need to be retooled and adjusted. It's the difference between having Christ as the person who is doing all of the work or or Christ is giving you an example to follow or giving you good advice and being a life coach. Okay, let me give you another example of another church who's done something very similar, and that's the uh, uh, Mastering My Emotional Monsters series. This is from a church in Franklin, uh, Tennessee. And, I mean, listen, this is... He's quoting Vincent Van Gogh in his marketing piece here. Let's not forget that the little emotions are the great captains of our lives. Vincent Van Gogh. Um, The top six emotional musts, what I do when I feel lonely, what I do when I feel betrayed, what I do when I feel frustrated, what I do when I feel depressed, what I do when I feel inferior, what I do when I feel desperate. I will be happy, so help me God. Is the end of the sermon series coming up on November 23rd. Notice, again, what's going on here. Me, 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 right. It's me. And are these primary doctrinal themes within the scriptures? Can you, um, can you take me to the epistle of emotional monsters? <laughs> Serious, you know. Um, does the Apostle Paul address depression? How about Jesus? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. We, that's it's the missing epistle of Van Gogh, because everyone knows that he was really stable. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going we're going to wor- basically work with their theory. These churches consider themselves to be seeker sensitive. In other words, they're buying into a, a, a theory of doing church that basically says we're going to turn into church service into something that will meet the needs of the unchurched. So that they, people who are, this is their, this is their words, far from God, people who are far from God, um, will, uh, go to actually being close to God. Okay. I'm going to click this out here. So we got far from God. Click that. Hello. There we go. To actually this, the term they're using nowadays is Christ follower. Okay, so the idea is is that you go from being far from God to being a Christ follower. All right, and so these churches are very open about the fact that they these are this these are a church. This is a church that you can go to where you're not condemned, where you can feel the love of God, where you can experience God's purposes for your life. Okay, they're following models that were developed by Robert Schuller, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, okay? So the idea is to go take somebody who's far from God to being a Christ-centered, Christ follower. And so here's the deal. Rick Warren is very open about the fact that he, his sermons are actually all about repentance. And he defines repentance as changing your mind, which technically is the right way to define it. And then what he says, though, is, is that rather than tell somebody they're a sinner... What I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to give them steps and applications that they can apply to their lives in all of these different areas so that they will go from you know having dysfunctional relationships to applying the right principles where they're now loving somebody else. A Christ follower is defined as somebody who loves God and loves others. Okay, let me put that down here. Loves God and others. 
Sorry, it doesn't quite fit in the box, but I think you got the idea. Notice anything about that definition? It's law. What is the entire summary of the Mosaic law? Take people who are far from God, turn them into Christ followers, and a Christ follower is defined as somebody who loves God and loves others. Right, that's what's missing. Jesus is missing. Okay, in this way of doing church, you make a decision to follow Jesus. I'm going to decide to follow Jesus. And you even may be offered forgiveness for your sins and a clean start. But Jesus doesn't really play much of a role after that because now a Christ follower is, is defined as somebody who loves God and loves others. And if you don't happen to be at church on a day when they preach the gospel, what you're going to hear are steps that you can take in different categories of life. Finances, relationship, career, parenting. And apply these steps so that you will love God and love others more. Not poverty is another big important one now. You know, addressing social injustices. Now, the key to unlocking all this, you're right, you don't need Christ, is here's the deal, okay? If I preach to you the law, saying that you have to love God and you have to love others, and you get to busy trying to love God and love others, on the surface, you might actually look like you're pulling it off, or you might feel like you're pulling it off, okay? So if I were to measure your love for God and love for others... I couldn't distinguish you from somebody who had faith, you know, whether they have faith or not. If you're going to base it on the law, okay, you can measure, there's what's apparently now ways that you can measure what someone's love for God and love for others. The issue is, is that as Jesus describes in the parable of the field, okay, there was a farmer who went out and he sowed good seed and, you know, and he had an enemy who came in the middle of the night and sowed tares with the wheat, right? Now the problem with tares is that they look just like wheat. Okay, it's, and you really can't tell the difference until you get to harvest time. Unless you have a really good eye. So, the way we have to understand this, and the way we've got to work with this, is that there's a, there's a saying that our theologians and those who wrote our confessions say. And that it's this, good works never precede faith. Good works never precede faith. Why? Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay? And look at the Pharisees. They're a good example of people who read their Bible and based upon their actions had the outward appearance of people who loved God and loved other people. Right? The one thing you couldn't say about the Pharisees is that they were not religious. And you couldn't say that outwardly they didn't have a love for God. But did they truly have a love for God? Were their good works good works? No, they weren't. Christ didn't consider them good works. He says, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Okay? So, here's the issue. is, Is that these churches are not preaching repentance and faith, okay? They're preaching that you need to become a Christ follower and that's, designed, that's defined as somebody who loves God and loves others. Jesus kind of gets you in the door because we're Christians and we believe in Jesus Christ. We might even affirm the deity of Christ and might even affirm salvation by grace. But the thing we focus on, a steady, 
Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is what can you do as a hurting person to apply steps to your lives to move you from here to here? I don't need Christ for that. So now I can manage my emotional monsters, deal with control issues, psychological problems, or whatever. It's Christless Christianity. And the important thing is to note, good works never precede faith. They truly flow from it. So what happens is, is that Christians who have faith, these are people who understand their sinful state before God, have repentance and contrition for their sins, and trust in Christ for their salvation. By the way, those that repentance and that faith is given by God as a gift. Scripture is very clear that both of those come from God. And it comes through means, through the hearing of the Word of God, the Gospel, or through baptism. Does that make sense? And then if that faith is sustained through hearing God's Word and receiving the sacraments as, they're, you know, as they center in on the Gospel. So the thing is, is that true Christians, love for God and love for others is fruit of faith. It truly is. That's why James is not in contradiction to Paul. Because James says, just as the body is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead. Luther says, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. So what happens is the hallmark of a true Christian life is through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the church and the sacraments, a growing love for God and a growing love for others. It's imperfect in this lifetime, and it might even we may not even be able to see much of it ourselves from our point of view, but our good works are for our neighbor, not for ourselves. Okay? So what happens is, is that you can be in the same room with somebody who claims that they're a Christ follower and they say that they love God and love others and they display it through acts of mercy, involvement in the church, activity, and other things like that, but they may not have faith. This is where it gets dangerous because unless you're preaching repentance and faith, repentance and trust, what you're going to end up with are people who are fooling themselves into thinking they're keeping the law. Very dangerous stuff. Now, all of this kind of serves as backdrop because you know, I, it's fresh on my mind for what's going on in the Reveal Conference. And what was really scary for me when I was there is that the final speaker, the final plenary session at the Reveal Conference was given by a gentleman by the name of John Ortberg. He's pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Menlo Park, California. And he basically outright attacked salvation by grace alone. He says that, the name of his plenary is, Are You Making Better Christians or Are You Making Disciples? As if there's a difference. Okay? And he made the case that we've got a problem in Christianity because we're, te- we're teaching people how to, quote, use Christ. Are you a user of Christ? Well, the way he defined that is, is that if you, you are using Christ if you are using him for salvation. I wish I was making that up. Yeah. So are you are you I'm a user of Christ by the way. <laughs> because <laughs> in fact Christ invites us to use him. So anyway, this keep these categories in your mind because as we talk about Jesus in the Old Testament, I want to remind you again of what we were talking about in this in this series 
as we go back into it, is that there's an overarching theme in the Scripture, okay? And that's Christ's redemptive work for sinners in all ages. So when we look at the story of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, name the person, we're looking at sinners. Or as Pastor Rody said this morning, we stand shoulder to shoulder with sinners of all stripes throughout history. So when we look at Abraham, we see a sinner, and we see somebody who, according to Hebrews 11, did the things he did through faith. That faith produces those good fruits. It didn't focus in, it was the faith that, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith. Does that make sense? So what happens is, if you look at the fruit without understanding that it flows from faith, and here's a good analogy for you guys to to consider, is that faith is like eyeballs, okay? Without a mirror, you can't see your eyeballs, okay? And faith is something that sets its gaze on something. It's either going to be on myself, or it can be on money, it could be on an idol of my own making, it could be on just about anything, name it, okay? But... True saving faith is that faith that has its set, has its eyes set. That faith is set on the object of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the way to look at this. So when we read in scriptures, if we miss Christ in the Old Testament, we miss the whole thing. It really truly is all about Christ. And Jesus Christ said as much on the road to Emmaus said as much to the Pharisees. You diligently search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. Yet you, ref- you know, they, are the, they are they that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. To which the Pharisee was probably sitting there scratching his head going, where does it talk about this guy? Right? But the Scriptures are about Christ. So in our lesson today, this is probably one of the more blatant Examples of Christ in the Old Testament. And um, I want to set a little bit of groundwork here first by looking at Abraham and what the Scriptures talk about regarding him. And then we're going to look at the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. It's crazy stuff. So let me come... We're in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to start at verse 16. It says, talking about faith and, and the promise. It says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope. Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is, was as good as dead since he was about as 100 years older when uh, he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So we're talking here about the faith of Abraham. We're, you know, we're jumping into the middle of, a, of something that Paul is writing here in the book of Romans, and he's talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Okay, And he's pointing to Abraham and Abraham's faith. Abraham was promised to become the father of many nations, and Father Abraham was a very old dude, okay? Really, really old. You know, geriatric at this point, okay? And his wife, 
not much better. Okay. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. So, even though he was old, even though his body was falling apart, God said that he would be the father of many nations, and he trusted God despite what his eyes saw. In much the same way, that's our faith. Because why? When you look into the mirror of the law, what comes back in the reflection is sinner. Right? Yet Christ, in his word, declares you to be saint. Promises you to be an heir of salvation. Really? Well, I know I haven't earned it. Okay? Much the same way. So no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God and he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what faith does. It clings to those promises. It focuses on Christ. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis chapter 15. His faith was credited to him. Accounting terms as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if you want to understand how to see Jesus in the story of Abraham, the book of Romans lays it out for you in no uncertain terms. What we see is the fruit of Abraham's faith is the actions that he took. But it was his faith centered on, on the promises of God and that, uh, that steadfast, almost stubborn believing. I don't care if my body's falling apart. God said to me personally, I will be the father of many nations. God will make good his promises. But Abraham, look at you. Look at you. You're going you're gonna to become a father? Really think so? Come on, that's kind of silly. Look at how old you are. Maybe, maybe God just meant that, that you'd be the father of many nations symbolically. No, no, no. He meant it real. So we continue. Going into the book of Galatians then, Paul picks up on, on Abraham's story again. And he's talking about, and we all know the book of Galatians is about, it's written to a church that, um, where Judaizers had come in after Paul had left. And they were basically saying, you know, that Paul guy, he told you that salvation is by grace alone and that you Gentiles don't have to keep the Mosaic law. Well, he means well, but he was wrong. You guys, come come over here. We got to snip you. Don't worry, it'll only hurt for a week. And this is the days before Neosporin and antibiotics. Lovely. Okay. And Paul, writing to the Galatians who bought into this Judaizing way of doing things, this idea that somehow I can add my works to the perfect righteousness of Christ and that salvation is now somehow Christ plus circumcision, Christ plus something else. Paul writes, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. That's, they received the Spirit not because they were obedient Christ followers. They, were, they received the Spirit because they were 
trusting in the promises of God. The promise of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you so foolish, having then begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is faith. Why? Because now he points again to Abraham. You want to see Christ in the Old Testament? Here's Abraham again held up for us, you know, showing us how he trusted in Christ. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of, the, of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You mean Abraham believed the gospel? That's what Paul's arguing here, isn't he? And who inspired Paul to write these words? The Holy Spirit. Right. Now, this is a really important thing. I, I, I should, this little subnote. Okay. Um, I always find it interesting when people somehow pit Jesus against the God of the Old Testament. It's always very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus claims to be none other than God in human flesh. Well, how many gods are there? Okay. So who was speaking to Moses in the burning bush? Jesus. Right? Or could you somehow say, well, maybe it was the Father. It doesn't say... But is that is that a distinct is that a difference that's going to make a difference? None whatsoever. Okay, it's always important to keep emphasizing that Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. What's funny is is that the new atheists get it. The new atheists get it. What's that guy? Who was that guy? I played that quote from a couple weeks ago. Uh, I can't remember his name. I'm getting old. No, it was a it was. I wish it was because it would it would save my bacon at this point, but there's no point in in my bacon being saved. Um, the, the new atheists, uh, Dawkins, uh, Hitchens, yeah, Hitchens, yeah, Hitchens, right, Hitchens. There's Christopher Hitchens is the guy. Hitchens, I got a great quote from him, and basically, he he's kind of slamming some of these squishy evangelical types who try to make a difference between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. And he says, I've read the book. Jesus, when he comes back, is going to be guilty of of, of, of bigger genocide than Hitler or Stalin or any of the you know worst people in the world. And Hitchens has got a point, okay, in that when Christ comes in judgment, right, we're all going to have to stand before him. And it's not going to be pretty for some. And this idea that the warm, fuzzy Boy Scout Jesus that people have kind of created, that's not the full picture of him. Right? Even McLaren, the emergent guy, takes issue with the fact that this idea that Jesus is going to come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. Read the book, Brian. Don't reinterpret it. Read it. Let it inform you what it is that Jesus is going to do. 
the the passage from Philippians chapter two, which it was is really a good is a good one here. Um, all right, well we're going to do this on the fly here. Let me pull up my computerized Bible. All right, here it is. This wonderful passage from Philippians chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, let's see. Yeah, yeah. Let me read it in context. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participating participation in the spirit, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, a, in full accord and of mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind also yourselves, which, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, this is talking about Jesus, who through, though he was uh, equal with God, a thing to, uh, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every, tongue, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, this is cross-referencing a passage of Scripture here. We're in Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to back it up to, in order to get a little bit of context here. This is Yahweh speaking. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And here, right here, notice how it's capitalized, Lord. That's... It, it, that's invoking the tetragrammaton. In fact, if I were to if I were to show you this in the Hebrew, this is the name Yahweh. Okay, so we know this is establishing who's speaking here, right? Okay, was it not I, Yahweh, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Who is Jesus according to Philippians chapter 2 then? He's Yahweh. Unmistakable. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the one true God. All right. So here's uh, here's this is in Exodus chapter three. Moses and God are having a little conversation at a burning bush. You know, Moses sees a bush that's burning. He approaches it, and as he gets close to it, he hears a voice saying, "Take off your sandals." The ground you are standing on is holy ground. You know what's interesting? A little side note again. I'm bunny trailing a bunny trail. So we're now into our second iteration of a bunny trail here. Okay. Is that I always find it interesting that the people who claim that God is speaking to them, God is never saying anything negative to them. <laughs> you wicked sinner. <laughs> you, you don't hear that. 
No, no, no wrath. That God doesn't exist. I, I think it was Horton who had a great article. And he, he the uh, maybe it wasn't Horton. I forget who wrote it now, but uh, it was a, it was an interesting point that right after the nine eleven attacks, uh, you know, when the terrorists took the towers down and attacked the Pentagon, um, there was some crazy Christian preacher who was saying that this is a judgment from God, and you know he was immediately silenced and poo pooed by everybody. We went out and bought our flags, and then at every sporting event we were singing "God Bless America." And the, the guy makes a point. He says, I find it interesting that we believe in a God who would never judge us, but only bless us. Ouch. There's something to be said there. Anyway, so let's, let's, uh, let's get back to the original bunny trail. So the Lord said, uh, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry before their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Man, this sounds like what Christ did, doesn't it? Egypt is always a symbol moving forward of slavery and sin and paganism and stuff like that. So what we see here, you want to see Christ in action? You were in Egypt. You were a slave. Christ comes and redeems you. He, send, you know, he comes himself. Okay, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Uptites. And <laughs> I always do that. I just, the Balletites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring uh, my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of uh, of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am. That's, you know, in in Greek, it's this verb, it's this this, self-existing concept. There, I am, I exist, I am, I be. Okay, now, Jesus picks up on this language here. So, one of the divine names for the God of the Old Testament is I am. And I think the ESV does a good job here. Let me, I think I've got this right. Let me, this is John chapter 8. All right, this is is a great story. Jesus is having this showdown with the Jews, okay, and and so he says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay. Apparently things in the conversation have really gone well to the point now we're to the insult phase. Um, <laughs> that's always the sign that somebody's paying attention when they're insulting you. Okay. <clears throat> and Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, understand something. The Jews are people of the book. They understand the concept of the word of God. And Jesus saying, if you keep my words, you will never see death. 
they already get it. This guy's claiming to be deity. Who does he think he is? Okay. So the Jews said to him, well, now we know you have a demon. We know it. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You can just feel the conflict as you read this passage. Okay. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say that he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. There's that kind and gentle Jesus again. Um, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And he's kind of speaking about Abraham as if he knows Abraham at this point. And so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, well, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was. I am. Ego me in the Greek. It's it's emphatic. I, I am. Now. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus had hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Yeah, blasphemy. He claimed to be God. Okay. The, according to the Mosaic law, the punishment for blasphemy is you take somebody outside the city gates and you throw rocks at them until they stop moving and breathing. Okay, that's the punishment. Jesus claims at this point to be God. He says, if you keep my words, you'll never see death. And he invokes the divine name from Exodus chapter 3, I am, and applies it to himself. But, you know, they, you know if Jesus, and that's, the, the, they get the point here, and that's the thing. Who is Jesus making himself out to be? He's claiming to be none other than God. Well, your logical possibilities at this point are he's lying and deceiving people into believing that he's God when he's not. Okay, he's one taco short of a combo plate and needs to be given the straight jacket and put into a padded cell. Montgomery tells a fun story about, you know, a guy who walks into a um, into a funny farm, an insane asylum. And he's uh, and he sees one guy with his arm in his coat and you know walking around like he's really important. And he says, who are you? And he says, I am Napoleon Bonaparte. And he says, well, how do you know that you're Napoleon Bonaparte? He says, because God told me. And then he hears the shout from across the room going, no, I didn't. I never said that. Okay. It's a fun story. Okay. So either Jesus is lying or he's a lunatic or he is who he claimed to be. There's no way around it. He claims to be none other than the one true God. And Philippians chapter two makes him out to be Yahweh of the Old Testament. Yeah, he does. He does. So, you know, there there it is. Who is he? Funny enough, all of this was... We were talking about law and gospel and Abraham, right? 
All right. Now, coming back to Abraham, which, by the way, Abraham was a good character there in uh, John chapter 8. All right. So, talking about circumcision then. We are the faith of Abraham, and the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by, by the works of the law. This is what the distinction is in Galatians. By faith, uh, the, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's a little gospel message there. In Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Why? Because the promised seed is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the blessing of all the nations. Right? Seed of Abraham. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, who is the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you want to be saved by the law, go for it. But here's the deal. You're cursed because you've got to abide by the whole thing the whole time. Okay, God doesn't grade on a curve when it comes to the law. If you score in 70 percentile, you're still damned. It's 100 percent or nothing, but it doesn't. Yeah, that, that's the that's the dirty little secret. The term Christ follower is code talk for somebody who's trying to obey the law. It's really what it boils down to. And the issue is, is that they're not interested in, in believing and trusting in Christ or the obedience that flows from faith. What they're trying to do is it's, it's this naked obedience that it's good works that faith has very little. There's, not, there's, there's no concept of faith. Okay? And so what they, what they will do is they will, they will read the application verses in the epistles and say, okay, well, I need to uh, stop gossiping. I need to ha- not be negative. I need to, you know, I need to you know, apply these things. And they think that that's what it means to follow Christ is to apply these verses. And so over and over and over again, you hear that, you know, you, know, you hear testimonies like this. You know, such and such a girl, she, she just made a decision for Jesus and she was reading in the book of Colossians and she learned, and she, get this, she was able to apply Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17 to a situation that she had going on in her life. And we're all sitting there and go, wow. Really, I didn't know that that passage was written about that little girl. You, you see what I'm saying? Okay. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's a sharp distinction in the scriptures and we must maintain it. No one will be justified by the law. The righteous will live by faith. And that's the difference. Righteous live by faith. Those who are trying to be justified by the law are trying to make themselves righteous through the law. Big difference. The law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's Abraham again. In the New Testament. You want to find Christ in the Old Testament. We're looking at the story of Abraham. Look at it right there. 
over and over and over again, the gospel is being proclaimed in the life of Abraham. The man of faith. Right? And if you think it's about Abraham the Christ follower and the things he did, you're missing the point. He's the man of faith. So, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Think contract language here. Okay? Um, a contract, a covenant is a contract, and so once you've ratified a contract, okay, you, you, you know, let's say Atkinson and I decide that uh, he's going he's gonna to buy a boat from me, okay, and we've got the terms laid out, you know, he's going to pay me X amount of dollars over a given amount of time with a percentage of interest, and there's particular clauses, you know, if he defaults, then I get to, you know, to, you know, take his house or something, you know, whatever, and we agree upon this, and we sign the covenant. Once it's ratified and we've signed it, it's now binding. You don't go back and say, you know, I don't like that one clause. Can we change that? You know, that's not how it works. Okay, so in talking about a covenant here with Abraham, to give a human example, brothers, even when a man-made covenant, no one annuls it to it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, plural, okay, referring to many, but referring to one. In the Greek word, it's seed, okay, and to his seed, okay, um, and to your offspring who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Salvation is through a promise, not through the law. The law comes 430 years later, and it cannot annul the covenant that was made with Abraham. Cannot. The covenant stands. Okay? Alright. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Promising him that he would be a blessing to all nations. Not by law, but by promise. God established that. He can't go 430 years later and go, nah, 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 nah. that covenant I made with Abraham, forget about it. Okay? Why then the law? What was the law for? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's the seed, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So here's the idea. Covenant was ratified. Covenant was made with Abraham, promising that the gospel, that Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world, Right? Or the seed would be, okay? 430 years later on Mount Sinai, we get the law. You can't erase the promise because salvation is, is guaranteed as a promise through the covenant that God made with Abraham. And 430 years later, the law comes. He can't possibly be saying, oh, no, 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 we're changing the contract. That's the point of what Paul's saying here, right? All right, we're going to stop here and we'll pick this up from here next week.